Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is Warfare, and I have some news. After an amazing three years and hundreds of episodes, the Warfare podcast is coming to an end. I always say it's a true joy to present this podcast. I've learned so much over the years from our expert guests, but all good things must come to an end, and it's time for me to take a break from podcasting. I've just moved to the US to start a new job, and my wife and I are excitedly expecting a baby very soon. But of course, it won't be the last year here from me. So now is the time, if you haven't already, to drop me a follow on Instagram at James Rogers History. This just leaves me to say a massive thank you to the excellent History Hit team for their hard work over the years. To Sophie, who started the podcast with me, to James and Dan, who commissioned it, to Steve, who runs all the podcasts at History Hit, to Aidan, who helps edit it, and to Elena and Annie, who basically run the entire show, working tirelessly to produce and edit the episodes that have allowed us to reach 180 countries worldwide. And of course, my final thanks goes to all of you. Thank you for your emails, for your support, for your suggestions, and it's been a pleasure to meet so many of you around the world in person. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and maybe like me, you've even learned a thing or two and discovered a new history along the way. I hope you'll join me on my next chapter. Our last episode will air in a couple of weeks on September 4th, and up until then, we have amazing content. So enjoy these episodes, enjoy our vast back catalogue, enjoy all the other History Hit podcasts, and especially enjoy today's episode. Thank you all so much. At exactly 9.20am on the morning of May 30th, 1945, General Leslie Groves received a message to report to the Office of the Secretary of War at once. Stimson was waiting for him. He wanted to know, had Groves selected the targets yet? The sites chosen would ultimately be Nagasaki, Kokora, and Hiroshima, with the latter being subject to the first atomic annihilation in history. But how were these decisions made? Who made them? And how did the atomic bomb actually impact the end of the Second World War, if at all? I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, and for the last time here on the Warfare Podcast, it is my privilege to bring you a true expert, the New York Times bestselling author, historian, and journalist, Evan Thomas. Evan is the author of Road to Surrender, a book which follows three of the most influential figures in the final months of the war. These are Henry Stimson, the American Secretary of War, General Carl Spatz, the head of strategic bombing in the Pacific, and Japanese Foreign Minister Sigonori Togo, the only one in the Emperor's Supreme War Council who believed even before the bombs were dropped that Japan should surrender. 
It is through these three pivotal figures that Evan shows us exactly how the Second World War came to an end and how unconditional surrender was secured. Welcome to Warfare, and thanks for joining us as we mark the 78 years since the end of the Second World War. And those final months, weeks of the war, have been the focus of so much attention recently, with a core focus on Oppenheimer, of course, the whole world has gone mad for Oppenheimer, but also the torment of those around him, as this seemingly inevitable deployment of the atomic bombs on Japan took place. And I think, Evan, it's here that I want to start, on this exact point. Do you think that by the time the Trinity test was successful, that the bombing of Japan was inevitable? Yes, without doubt. There was just no discussion, no discussion of not using those bombs. So a matter of finances at play, you need to prove the fact that you've invested all of this money into the Manhattan Project, all of these expertise, you've built an entire town, brought the world's best minds together to make this bomb. You need to deploy it to prove to the politicians, but also in the end to the taxpayers, that this money wasn't wasted. Yes, that sounds unbelievably cold-blooded. It's more complicated than that, and we're going to get into it. But Stimson, the Secretary of War, joked that it's a good thing the thing works because otherwise we'd all be going to jail. Having spent $2 billion on it, they were relieved that it worked. And the fact that it worked made it that much more likely that they were going to use it. There's just no discussion of not using it. Now, was this a crass, immoral, cold, bloodless act? No. Because I think it did end the war. There's a huge debate about this, about whether it was necessary or not. I'm on the side of it was necessary, but I understand the debate. It's a horrific thing that we did. And I think there's no question that some of the motivation was purely scientists wanting to show the thing that could work and policymakers who'd spent a lot of money wanting to show the thing could work. And also knowing that the American public, if we'd spent all that money on this bomb and not used it and the war had continued, they would have gone, what the hell? I mean, for me, I think your work has opened my mind to the fact that there are perhaps three key figures that are vital for us to analyse, not only in terms of that decision around why and when the bomb was dropped, but also, as your new book is called, that road to surrender, those pivotal moments between the deployment of the bombs and that total unconditional surrender of Japan. And in your work, you've gone deep into the archives here, looking at Stimson's diaries, you can see quite clearly that perhaps it is Secretary of War Stimson, who is perhaps the most pivotal figure when it comes down to making this final decision, someone who only really gets a short showing in Christopher Nolan's latest film. Is that a fair appraisal of Stimson? Was he the pivotal person when it came down to deciding the deployment of this bomb? I think so. Stimson, you might call him the chairman of the board of the atom bomb. Yes, Oppenheimer, the scientist, designed it. He reports to General Groves, the military guy played by Matt Damon in the movie. But they report to Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War. And it's Stimson who keeps the money going, Stimson, who keeps Congress quiet. Stimson, who is the authority figure. Now, ultimately, the authority figure is the president. But Roosevelt dies in April 1945, leaving Harry Truman. Harry Truman has not even been told about the atom bomb. I do think he knew about it. I think he had some inkling of it, but he has not been briefed. Roosevelt didn't tell him. And Stimson briefs him two weeks after he becomes president. So he's new on the job. 
There is no evidence that Truman pushed back at all. So this is really a Stimson-led project. Now, did Stimson worry about this? He sure did. In his diary, he would refer to the atom bomb as the terrible, the awful, the diabolical. One of his aides was John McCoy. So once asked, did Henry Stimson think about this and worry about it? And McCoy's answer was, how did Stimson think about it? On his knees was the answer. Praying. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Stimson was a church-going Episcopalian, thought of himself as a Christian gentleman. So Stimson worried about it plenty. But the fact that he worried about it doesn't mean that he thought about not using it. No, they were going to use this thing, I think, no matter what. Stimson was no fool. By this point in time, he had served five presidential administrations. Do you think it was that experience that helped him grasp the reality? Because it's so often said that not only the scientists, but the politicians didn't know the force of this bomb. But I think as we go through the papers and the archives, it's pretty clear that they knew that this would be a new terrible weapon. But Stimson's experience must have shown him that this was really the only way to end the war. Stimson is a realist, but he's also an idealist. It intrigues me, because this is American foreign policy in a nutshell. Americans are idealists. They believe in democracy and freedom, and they want to spread that. That's true, more than other countries in history. But we're a giant superpower, a hegemon. And Stimson understood that. He was a realist, and he understood the uses of power. And he didn't love it. It's not that he was bloodthirsty, but he realized that sometimes it was necessary. Now, you mentioned... They have this meeting in late May, actually, amongst the top people. And they ask Oppenheimer, how big is a bomb? He says between 2 and 20 kilotons. The Hiroshima bomb was 12 kilotons. The Nagasaki bomb was 20 kilotons. So that's the upper range of what Oppenheimer predicted. Then he's asked, how many people will it kill? And Oppenheimer answers, eh, 20,000. Actually, it killed 70,000 pretty much right away in Hiroshima, another 70,000 more slowly. Nagasaki had killed 35,000 right away, another 35,000 more slowly. These numbers are inexact. We're still guessing at them. The point is, yes, they knew they had a hell of a bomb on their hands, but they didn't know quite how big it was. And until you actually use something, you don't know. When I was going through Stimson's papers in the Sterling Memorial Library over at Yale, I was struck time and time again how he was almost justifying it to himself by saying that this was going to be a military target and using the terms it was going to hit the war-making capacity. Now, for me, this is very much in line with a very old American way of doing bombing, this whole idea of ethical, moral, precision bombing doctrine. This was what the Americans have been talking about since, well, after the First World War, even in the final days of the First World War, the United States would bomb differently to the abhorrent old world of Britain and Germany and their area bombing doctrines, and they'll only hit these military targets, and they'll avoid, I quote, the populace and their livelihood. But Stimson isn't naive, and Truman isn't naive when he's saying that in his final speech to the American people, saying that this was a military target. It wasn't in so many ways. You just listed the amount of thousands of deaths that were there. Was this purely a way of making it palatable to the American people? Because I've been down to Hiroshima, I'm sure you have as well, Evan. We know that where it struck around that area was a bustling marketplace. And yes, there is the Second Army headquarters, Hiroshima Castle, about 500 meters away up the road. That is the military target. But there wasn't such thing as a purely military target in Hiroshima. You've just opened a giant can of worms, something that I've struggled with for years. 
Because you're right, the U.S. military likes to talk about precision bombing and military targets. It's actually imprecise. It's really area bombing. And we're killing a lot of civilians. Now, this is a very difficult subject. Let's go to right to the heart of it. The day that Truman gives the order to drop the atom bombs, this order is plurals, bombs as made ready on four cities, Hiroshima, Nagita, Nagasaki, and Kokura, the day that he gives that order, he writes in his diary that night, I have instructed the Secretary of War, that's Stimson, and we are in agreement, that it should be a purely military target. The target should be soldiers and sailors and not women and children. What the hell is he thinking? Hiroshima, as you say, their military is headquarters city and their troops are... The bomb did kill somewhere between 10 and 20,000 soldiers but it killed 50 to 60,000 civilians. And of course, most of them probably are women and children because the men are off at war. So what is Harry Truman thinking when he writes that in his diary? The answer is, I don't know. Historians can't make this stuff up. Here's my theory. That day, the issue before Stimson and the president was taking Kyoto off the target list because General Groves, who was a pretty, I wouldn't say it was bloodthirsty necessary, but talk about practical, he kept putting the city of Kyoto top on the target list three times and three times Stimson takes it off. Why? Kyoto is the ancient cultural capital of Japan, a beautiful city. I've been there. Maybe you have. It's lovely, and you don't want to destroy it. Groves actually does want to destroy it. He wants to wipe out the culture of Japan. And Stimson, who's been to Kyoto, doesn't want to. He wants to spare it. So that day, on the 25th of July, 1945, Stimson and Truman, one more time, take Kyoto off the target list. So I think they're thinking about, gee, we spared Kyoto, and it wasn't that a good thing. And so Hiroshima, that must be a military target. But they're not trying that hard to find out if it is. The next day, I believe, Stimson is worried a little bit about the targeting. Somebody sends him a National Geographic map. <laughs> it's pretty crude, the briefing he's getting on just what a target it is. And I can't help but think, and now I'm in the realm of psychology, they don't really want to know. They just don't really want to know. The most poignant scene of all to me between Stimson and Truman is a little bit earlier. This is, I think the date is June 6th, 1945. So this is six weeks earlier. And Stimson goes to see the president. And Stimson's committee has just decided our target's going to be a defense-related plant surrounded by workers' homes. Ridiculous. Obviously, it's, but that is what the wise men get together. And that's what they say. It's going to be a defense-related plant. And so now you have the president and meeting with the Secretary of War. And the Secretary of War says he's bothered by a couple of things here, about by firebombing. This is, we need to take a step back because we've been firebombing Japan since March. On March 10th, 1945, we killed 100,000 people, more than Hiroshima, with incendiaries. Why? Because precision bombing was not working. And Curtis LeMay, who's the head of the 21st Bomber Command, 20th Air Force, has been trying to do precision bombing and it misses because there's something called the jet stream, these giant winds that are blowing our brand new beautiful B-29s off course and they can't drop bombs on target. LeMay says, I got to have some results here or I'm going to get fired. And so how does he do that? He brings the planes in low at night 
and users incendiaries. Napalm, this new horrible jelly gasoline. It starts a firestorm and it burns down 16 square miles of Japan and it kills 100,000 people. More people die in six hours than in any war in history. How's that for a gruesome number? So that happens back in March. So going forward, the 21st Bomber Command continues to use incendiaries and they bomb Tokyo again. They're on their way to burning out 60 cities. And so now you have the Secretary of War who's in charge of all this and he comes to the president and he says he's bothered by the firebombing. And to get this, he says, I don't want us to look like Nazis. I don't want us to be accused of atrocities. Well, Roosevelt had sent out a warning to Germany and to Britain before the start of the Second World War, saying that they need to avoid this ruthless bombing of civilian centres. This was something that was very un-American. Yeah. And in times of supreme emergency, strategies and priorities change. But the United States had fully turned towards that old kind of bomber-Harris idea of in order to destroy something, you've got to destroy everything. It's a little more complicated than that, I think. There's a lot of euphemisms, even on the firebombing. They say they're going after economic targets. If you look at the targeting documents, they'll list a factory or a military base, and that's what we're trying to hit. Now, we're burning everything around it to burn it down. Are they cynics? Is this just a laughable exercise in cynicism? I don't really know. I wasn't there. It's troubling as all hell. But let me finish the story here, because I think it's very revealing. Now we have the top two people, the Secretary of War and the President. And this is early June. The atom bomb hasn't been tested yet, but they're on their way to using it. What Stimson is talking to Truman, he says, look, I have a problem here. One is I don't want us to look like Nazis. But now here comes the twist. But he says, but we need a city that hasn't been burned down. So I'm afraid we'll burn down all the cities so we won't have the proper backdrop for our new weapon. Now think about this for a second. He doesn't want to burn all the cities down. But on the other hand, he wants a pure, untainted, virgin city to burn down with his atom bomb. And so he stimps in his diary. What does he write? He writes, the president laughed. Now think about this for a second. What kind of laughter do you think that was? It was not jolly ho-ho, isn't this funny? Aren't we having a good time? It's the bitter, melancholy, ironic, gallows humor laugh of two men who are in an impossible situation where they got to get these results, but they know what they're doing is, the modern term would be war crimes. I don't believe that they were war crimes. I can understand why people would say these are atrocities and war crimes. It makes me extremely uncomfortable. I'm defending, in my book, I defend these decisions, but it makes me extremely uncomfortable. I don't really know what these guys are thinking, but this moment captures something for me. My book is about moral ambiguity which is, I think, something you get into these terrible wars, and how can you avoid it? Hello, host of Dan Snow's History Hit Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There appears to be a moment where you could perhaps avoid the dropping of the second bomb. Surely, take us through their mindset from that moment on August 6th, when you've got the dropping of the first bomb, little boy, on Hiroshima. You're starting to see the impact of this. The reports are coming through. They're coming to Truman. There's announcements going on that this has taken place. But when they start to get these results in, do they not think that this is enough? We perhaps don't need the second bomb. What is the mindset? What are the discussions that are going on at this time? This is messy and complicated, and I wish I had a clear answer for you. The order that goes out is to bomb four cities with bombs is made ready. They've turned control over to the military. Truman doesn't even know that the second plane is in the air. That's a military decision that's made on Tinian and Guam, where the military guys are. It's a weather-driven decision. There's a front coming in. They're supposed to wait five days or six days. There's weather coming in, so they push it up to three days. They're breaking the Japanese code, and they find out before the second bomb is actually dropped that a reported 100,000 people have died in Hiroshima. So they're listening to magic. They're breaking the Japanese codes. and They know that these bombs have done a hell of a lot of damage. But Truman's not even aware the second plane is in the air. And there is a moment when McCloy, Stimson's aide, says to Marshall, should we think about it here before dropping the second? And Marshall says, this man, the emperor, is tottering. We need to give him another shove. Now, we don't have good intelligence on what the emperor is thinking. We're reading some cable traffic, but we don't really know what the emperor is thinking. We have a better idea now, 70 years later. What's the emperor thinking? And the emperor is getting pretty close to wanting to surrender. I think the evidence shows that he did need a second bomb. Not so much the emperor needed a second bomb, but all the people around him who have the real power. The real power lies with the military. Because in the Japanese system, they can bring the government down anytime they want. And the military is not ready to surrender after one bomb. They need to be hit by a second bomb. Now, how do I know that? There are extensive diaries and records of a meeting that's going on. The Supreme War Council, six people, war minister, army, navy, chiefs of staff, foreign minister, prime minister. This is the people who really run the show. They're the true power in Japan. And they're having a meeting on the morning. This is three days after Hiroshima. And the Russians have invaded the night before, at midnight. Invaded Manchuria, not Japan, Manchuria. Oh my God, they're having a meeting. Word comes that a second, quote, Hiroshima-style bomb has just taken out Nagasaki. So now they know. Now they know. A second atom bomb has hit them. And they know it's an atom bomb. And the war minister, General Anami, really the most powerful man in Japan, he says, wouldn't it be beautiful if the entire nation were to perish like a cherry blossom? 
That's how suicidal these guys are. He says, let a hundred bombs fall. So they continue to debate and they don't take a formal vote, but they're split three to three on whether to surrender. This is after the second bomb, after the invasion. The War Council is split three to three on whether to surrender. Now, fortunately, behind the scenes, and my hero, Togo, the foreign minister, he's got this little peace party going, and they're maneuvering behind the scenes. And that night, they do get the emperor to say, we surrender. It's not a complete surrender, because they want to keep the emperor as a sovereign. So the United States rejects that, and they have to do it all over again four days later. After a coup attempt, we can get into all that. My point here is that even after two bombs, it's a very close thing on whether the Japanese are going to surrender. Why is that? Two reasons. One is they're crazy. There's a maniacal, death wish, nuttiness going on here. But the other is actually rational. And it goes something like this. They know they're defeated. Their fleet is sunk. Their cities are all burned out. They're not going for victory. What they want is no occupation. And they want to keep what they call the kokutai, the imperial system going. They don't want war crimes because they know they're going to get hung in war crimes. And they want to keep the emperor, they want to keep the system going. So they can come back. And that's not so crazy because they think if we just make the Americans invade, we'll bleed them. They had a word for it, shiketsu. We'll bleed them. And they know where the Americans are coming, southern Kyushu. Japanese are waiting for us. One million men, 7,000 kamikaze planes. That's a bigger force than we have landing. And they think they can inflict so much bloodiness, death, that we will say, okay, you can keep your emperor and we won't occupy it. That's not irrational if you're fighting conventional forces. However, if you're fighting atom bombs, that's a different thing. And they're grudging about it. They don't want to believe it's an atom bomb and okay, it is, but... Anami does all this nonsense about let them drop a hundred more, but handwriting's on the war. And it's given them an excuse. We could have defeated an American invasion, but these new terror weapons, I don't know, it gives them a face-saving reason to surrender. So they finally grudgingly go along with it. But as I said, there's a coup plot on the last night. So it's a close thing. Tell us about this coup, because when we look at people like Foreign Minister Togo, who you go into such detail with, in this book, and it's great to see that side of the story as well, and to see the deliberations that are going on, and like you say, just all of that debate. As you move towards the end of the war, you can see that perhaps defeat is on the horizon. Tempers must have frayed. There must have been incredible fights, arguments, and disagreements. How does someone like Togo make that peace happen, make that surrender happen? This is a subtle thing, and again, we don't have all the records on this. The emperor's records, a lot of them are still closed, so we're still learning. There's a historian named Richard Frank, who you're probably familiar with. He's really good on this. And he has got some guy who's about to publish an article from one of the court chamberlains who's around the emperor. And it's clear from this courtier that the emperor is really starting to get scared about another atom bomb on him. So his mood is changing. The military's been lying to him, and he's dependent on the military. His power comes from the military. But he's starting to change his mind. So that's an important factor. The emperor is starting to come around here. And Togo and these few peaceniks, these are lower, somewhat lower-level bureaucrats, head of the secretariat. There's a privy counselor named Kido. There are maybe four or five people who are lower-level around the emperor. And they are seeing the moment 
to persuade the emperor, and it's brave on the emperor's part, to do what they call a sedan, which is a sacred decision. Then normally, the way it works is the military, the war council decide something, they go to the emperor and he says nothing. And why? That's a silent assent, it means yes, but they don't want the emperor saying anything because they want him to be about politics. This is a good way to keep the power in the military. But no, actually this time the emperor takes the lead, never done before in this war, it's very unusual, it's called a sacred decision. He gets everybody in his bomb shelter on the night of the 9th, I guess it is, 9th, 10th. He gets everybody in his bomb shelter and he says, I agree with Togo, I agree with the foreign minister. He takes the side of the foreign minister. And the military guys are just beside themselves. They're crying, they're prostrate on the desks, but they go along. Now that they put a wrinkle in, they say, okay, we'll surrender, but the emperor has to be sovereign, or no, it's reporting to God. So back in Washington, we get that message. We surrender, but the emperor is still sovereign. And Truman and Jimmy Burns, the secretary of state, so they send back saying, no, the emperor cannot be sovereign. He's not reporting to God anymore. He's reporting to Douglas MacArthur, to the Supreme Allied Commander. That starts the problems all over again because the military fanatics won't accept that. So here we go again. And the military debates back on. And that's when the coup attempt starts. Now, the most interesting character here is the Japanese Minister of War, Anami. I can't really tell whether he's really fomenting this coup or not. Japanese are extremely indirect. I think he was ambivalent in his own mind. How does he resolve it? Seppuku. On the night the Japanese surrender, he takes his sword and he plunges it in his belly. He takes his dagger, he plunges it in his neck. He kills himself. And he writes a note, a cryptic note saying, for my crimes. It's not clear what his crimes are. So he just takes himself out of the game. The junior hotheads do stage a coup. They kill the head of the Imperial Palace Guard, murder him, and they forge orders to take over the palace. They're running through the palace. What are they looking for? The emperor has recorded his surrender speech to be played the next day at noon on the national radio. These soldiers are running through the palace trying to find that recording to break it, to smash it, so that he can't give the speech. They can't find it. It's hidden in a room reserved for the ladies-in-waiting. <laughs> so they can't find the record. They can't break it. And the head of the coup plot goes out and shoots himself. And Japan finally surrenders. But it's that close. It's that close. It's hard to think what the end game might be there once you've broken the recording. Do you go on to kill the emperor, to silence the emperor? There's no way of doing that. No, they don't kill the emperor. They kidnap. They kidnap the emperor. They do it in his name. Everything is done in the emperor's name. Right. Now, they might get rid of the emperor and put his brother in there. But we're doing this in the name of the emperor. The emperor's already pushing back somewhat. A month or two earlier, the military said, we built you a new palace up in the mountains for the final stand. And we have an armored train to take you up there. And he says no. A rare case of him standing up to the military. This is in June, a couple of months earlier, six weeks earlier. So the emperor's starting to show a little pushback here. But for most of the war, he does what the military tells him. He's querulous sometimes, he's grumpy about it, he's critical of them, but he goes along. Now he is finally pushing back. Why? To save his own skin, maybe? because he thinks that a third atom bomb's going to land on him. Not entirely wrong about that, because he's sick of the military lying to him. I don't know. But he does. The fact is, he does finally surrender. Would there have been a third atom bomb, Evan? And would it have been a target of something like Tokyo? 
So this is not well understood, and this is not new in my book. Rich Frank and others have been on to this. This is not something I discovered, but I make a lot of it. One of my characters is General Tui Spots. Tui Spots is the head of strategic bombing in Europe. So he's killed a lot of people in Europe, including civilians, and he's troubled by this, including Dresden. The night after we firebomb Dresden, what does Tui Spots do? He blows too much pay at a poker game, and his wife has to explain why. He's just dealing with the stress of it. He wants to quit. No, now he's got to go to the Pacific and run Operation Downfall, the final fall of Japan. And he's been told, you've got to drop an atom bomb. He says, if I'm going to kill 100,000 people, I want to see it in writing. He insists on a written order. He gets there. He's a dutiful guy. He does what he's told. But he's not happy about it. He writes in his diary, I was against the atom bomb, just as I've always been. This is back to your point killing civilians in cities, right? He's been killing civilians in cities, but he's against it. So you unravel this. <laughs> Duty is a hard thing. Yes. Not only that, the trouble there is that the technology just wasn't working. That Norden bomb site, despite all of its pre-war tests and what is it, getting a bomb in a pickle barrel from 20,000 feet, pinpoint precision. When you go over to Europe, there may be one or two clouds across that region from time to time. And it turns out, if you drop a bomb or two, you might get a bit of smoke and some fires. And the Norden bomb site ends up being worse than useless. And the Luftwaffe is shooting at you, and there's flak in the air, and it's a problem. So they miss a lot. That's also a problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a religion, but almost an ideology to them when it comes down to this precision bombing. Spatz is an Air Corps tactical schoolman. He's been born, brought up, and bred in this way of American bombing. So I can completely relate with this idea that towards the end of the war, he is completely fed up. Everything that he had worked his whole career towards is turned out to be something completely different. Yeah, and he's troubled by it. He's over in Guam, so he has this idea. And he does this before Nagasaki. Let's drop the second bomb in a burned-out area of Tokyo. Remember, 20 square miles have been burned out. Or in Tokyo Harbor. He wants to do a demonstration. The policymakers have rejected the idea of a demonstration on a desert island because they're worried it'd be a dud or the Japanese would shoot the plane down. They dismiss it. But their strategic air commander wants to do a demonstration using Tokyo using the burned-out areas of Tokyo or Tokyo Harbor. And he has this idea, before Nagasaki, it's rejected. So after Nagasaki, Japanese still aren't surrendering. So there's a very interesting document that shows Harry Truman talking to the British government. And he says, quote, sadly decided to drop a third atom bomb on Tokyo. This is on August 14th. This is just a few hours before we find out that they finally surrendered. So it appears that Truman has embraced Spots' idea. They've worked at it a little bit. They talk about something called the scare radius. You can see the flash and hear the bomb, but it doesn't kill you. So the idea is you drop it a few miles from the palace. So they can see the flash and see how terrible it is, but it doesn't actually kill them. Now, they very imperfectly understand radiation in this period. They dropped it in Tokyo Harbor. That might have created a radioactive tidal wave, which would have killed thousands of people. So this is not well understood, what they're doing here. The point is that Spots is thinking of a demonstration with a third bomb on Tokyo, the burned-out area. And it appears that the president of the United States has embraced this idea, but he, they don't have to use it because a few hours after he tells the Brits that we're doing this, 
we get word that this time the Japanese have surrendered for real, no sovereign empire, total real surrender, because the emperor has given this speech on the radio, and the war ends, so that we don't have to do it. But the point is, we came pretty close to dropping a third bomb. How do we get to that point where there is that surrender just in time then? Did the Japanese know there might be a third bomb on the way? How did they get to the agreement that the emperor would remain not in charge, but as this figurehead? They don't know there's another bomb on the way. They know the group that dropped the bomb is called the 509th Composite Group. They know their signals. So Japanese radio intelligence is hearing 509th Composite Group planes in the air. And so they're worried, of course, that one of them is about to deliver another bomb. They don't know anything more than that, but that's enough to be pretty frightening. And that's the sort of thing that pushes them to make these final concessions, or is it a political decision between the president? I think so. It's a little blurry, again, but I think it's the fear of a third bomb. And also, they just want to end the damn thing, because they're on the verge of starvation, civil war, nothing good is going to happen here. It is fascinating to look at this period. And for me, when we start to look at how American air power starts to proceed after the droppings of the bomb and the end of the Second World War, you start to see how Truman is starting to say, we will not use this bomb again. We need to push towards international control. But it's people like Arnold and Spatz around him who are saying we need to prepare for the next war. And they start to develop their own strategies as they go forwards. But what are the legacies of the bomb here for Japan? When we start to look over this period, who is it who is left in place? Is it Togo who is left in order to try and coordinate any sort of post-war rebuilding? Who are the figures that are left in place by the United States? Togo, ironically, and I think wrongly, is convicted of war crimes because he was in the cabinet for Pearl Harbor. So that makes him a war criminal. He gets 20 years and dies in prison. I think that's crazy. We should have given him a medal. He saved millions of lives. But that's what happened to him. He accepts it. He doesn't really complain that much. He resigns right away because he knows he's going to be arrested and tried for war crimes. But there's another strata of peace-minded bureaucrats, and they essentially take over. The Japanese fight to the end, but once they surrender, they accept it. There are a few final kamikazes. There are 5 million Japanese soldiers in Asia. And their fear was they'd keep fighting. And as we know, famously, a few of them took to the hills and fought for years. But almost all of them surrendered. Somewhat surprising, the emperor wisely sent out two princes to say, this is the imperial will. You need to surrender. And they did. All five million of them, they surrendered. And they gradually come back to Japan, not as heroes, but they do come back. And the Japanese accept their fate. They're a stoical nation. And they do accept their fate. There is very little pushback. It's incredible to think, isn't it, that centralized control ends up being the key thing that means that the war can end then. Once it's decided to end, can end as quickly as possible. Yeah. Evan, thank you so much. I think your work just reveals three of the key figures and that unimaginable pressure that they were under as they led towards this decision to drop the atomic bomb and then to try and obtain that unconditional surrender. You've got to tell us, what's the name of the book and where can we buy it? The book is called Road to Surrender, Three Men and the Countdown to the End of World War II. It's in bookstores everywhere, I hope. You can always get it on Amazon. One thing it is, I should say, it's a very fast tale. It's a fairly short book. It's a dramatic story. I hope we've shown that. But it was a close-run thing. It's a very dramatic tale. 
thank you, Evan, and thank you to all of you for listening to Warfare over the last three years. It's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure. Make sure you check out our over 300 episodes in our back catalogue, if you haven't already, and follow along online at James Rogers History on Instagram and at DR James Rogers on Twitter. For all the details about my new book, new TV series, and exciting new podcast coming out in the new year. But for now, it's goodbye from me, goodbye from Warfare, and I'll see you all again soon. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.